Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So this morning we're wrapping up this Jesus in the Bible series. I don't know about you, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot as I've studied and uh, I feel like I understand the arc and the many arcs of the Bible better as we've taken 40 weeks to go from Genesis to Revelation. I think maybe today you might see that the last chapter of Revelation is not that different from the first two chapters of Genesis. That it starts with this perfect garden and it ends with a perfect city. Um, So we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 today, the last two chapters in the Bible. But before we get to those, we have a journey to go on before we get to Revelation 21 and 22. So first I want to talk to you about encouragement, Um, especially encouragement in the face of a challenging situation. Uh, I know for me during the the long, you know, the longest 30 days of my life, COVID-19, I had to frequently look for something to be encouraged by. I would constantly, I was checking case counts and vaccine updates and news releases and just trying to figure out like, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Because I was starting to really not love life. But every time I heard a glimmer of good news, it gave me hope. And, and that's kind of what hope is. Hope is like that glimmer, that, that crack in the door that's like maybe good, something good will happen. Well, there's a lot of times in life where we need to experience hope. Hope is what helps us get through difficult times. Uh, I think of like preparing to get married. Uh, you, you get engaged and prepare to get married and there's this season where you're thinking about married life a lot, but yet you're not married, and so you're not acting as if you're married. Everybody heard me say that, right? We're not acting as if we're married when we're not married. All right, just want to make sure. It's 2020, so... Two th- oh, it's 2021. Even more. So we... we um, but you're thinking about marriage. You know, like, I know with my wife and I, was, where are we going to live? We're looking at apartments. We're planning the wedding. We're doing preliminary budgets. Even when my wife and I were dating, we had to have conversations like, do you want to have kids? If so, how many? Do you, you know, we actually agreed on names before we were even married. Well, at least for one of them. And uh, so... It's, it's weird because it's like you're thinking about it, but you're not fully experiencing. Similar with like having kids. You know, when, when you have a kid, and I hope that none of you ever get surprised, but you should know in advance that a kid is coming. And so uh, you do a lot of thinking about what's going to happen. You prepare a room, you know, you, maybe you paint the room, you have the baby shower, you get all the stuff, You've, maybe you change your employment, you change the way you handle money because you're preparing for this kid, yet the kid doesn't come. And just like a marriage, and having a child, it all culminates in this dramatic moment, right? You know, a wedding ceremony, it all culminates in this dramatic moment. The birth of a child, it culminates in this dramatic moment. All the hope, all the looking forward, all the preparing culminates when what you've been hoping for now is a reality. Does that make sense? When my wife and I got married, we both had, uh, we're, 
we were only out of college for a year, and we were not living together, and so we were paying, well, we had expenses and debt and credit cards and car payments, and we, when we got married, I'm not thrilled, to, I'm kind of ashamed to share this, but when we got married, we had $100,000 in debt, and no house to show for it, by the way. And so, for the first five years of our marriage, we kind of like just you know, did the bare minimum. I think we might have went more into debt at some points because we just, it wasn't like a high priority to get out of debt. When we had been married about five years, we were like, yo, we got to take care of this. We got to do something about this. And we got really aggressive about paying off debt. And it took a while, but we eventually paid off all of that debt and are totally debt-free other than our mortgage for our house. And our house is worth more than what we owe. So I don't even really consider that a debt. Uh, because we're in the positive by a long shot on that. So we, but there was this period of time, years, where the only thing that kept us going in paying off that debt was the hope that someday this will not be hanging over us. And we would sit and we would dream about like, imagine what we could do with all that money when we don't have to pay for school loans and credit cards and car payments and getting my hair done and stuff like that, you know? I haven't paid for a haircut in 13 years. And no, most of you have suffered, but now we're out of debt. So, you know, it was, it was the dreaming of what could be that got us through writing every stupid check that I hated doing but it was the dreaming that, that helped us get out. Does that make sense? Well, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, I don't know if they understood this, but they did it. God would use the prophets in the Old Testament to give Israel hope. And there's one moment in particular, and this is one of the darkest times in the Old Testament. You know, there's the slavery in Egypt and there's other times, but one of the darkest times in the Old Testament is toward the end of the Old Testament when Israel is sent into exile. One of the lesser understood time periods in the Bible is when Israel goes into exile. Before Israel went into exile, which is when they were carried away from their homes, put into subjugation in other places, those that were able to stay in their homes had another nation come and rule over them. Basically, they were not free. While they were in exile, and before they went into exile, God sent them prophets to encourage them, to give them hope so that they could remain faithful during a really dark and difficult time. Isaiah 65 has one of the most encouraging prophecies. Isaiah 65 is given before they even go into exile. But God gives Isaiah this prophecy so that when they get into exile, they already have where they can find their hope. So let me read Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. And I want you to just Try to figure out what is he talking about here? Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. This, I think, will be on the screen. Yeah, great. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will, be no longer, there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Let me stop right there. 
This is Isaiah speaking for God about this new heavens, new earth that he's going to create. There is no more weeping or crying there. What does that sound like to you? That's not that hard of a question. Okay, good. All right. It sounds like heaven, right? And if you've uh, read ahead, that phrase new heavens and new earth is used in Revelation 21 and 22. We'll look at that. It sounds like heaven. Well, let's keep going because it gets complicated. Verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. So no infant mortality or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100, 100 will be thought accursed. Now, this is interesting. He just said, in this new, new earth and new uh, heaven, uh, there's no more weeping or crying. That sounds like heaven. And he also says that uh, there'll be no in- children dying. That sounds like heaven. But then he says, the youth will die at 100. Now, that's a loaded phrase because what he's saying is, if you die at 100, you'll be considered young. We would say it's shocking that a person makes it to 100, and we would definitely not call them young, right? He's saying, if you die at 100, that'll be considered premature. That's, that is one thing to observe. But another thing is, so people are dying? I thought this was heaven, so what is this? Is this heaven or is this, let's keep reading. Let me just keep going. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Doesn't that sound like the beginning of a great soap opera? As the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of our people. Okay, what he's saying here is people will live as long as trees. That's crazy. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands, meaning you will outlive your work. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for their offspring of the, they are the offspring of those uh, blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. I will also, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. You ever had Jesus answer a prayer you didn't even get around to praying yet? I have that once a week probably, where I think I should pray about that. And he responds before I even get to prayer. Before they call, I will answer. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Okay. This is the question we've got to figure out. Is this heaven or something else? It really sounds like heaven, but there's still death. There's still work. There's still a, a serpent eating dust. Like, it doesn't sound totally quite like heaven. Well, the last few weeks, I've been dropping this word, trying to, like, work up to this, the millennium. You guys remember me talking about this thousand-year period? It's in Revelation 19 where this is after Jesus returns, it says he reigns, he binds Satan, he, t- he chains, ties Satan up. He doesn't annihilate Satan, he ties him up for a thousand years. It says for that thousand years, Satan is unable to deceive the nations and Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, he lets Satan out for one last final battle and that's when it all goes down. So people often will be like, what is that thousand years like? When there's no satanic activity on the earth, yet we are still on the earth. It's like that 
planning a wedding time. It's like, well, I'm thinking about the wedding, but we're not married. Or that planning a child, but like we're, we're, it's this in-between overlap period of time. Does that make sense? So there's this place, or it's a time, a period called the millennium in Revelation 19, where it's like heaven on earth, but it's not the final culmination. Does that make sense? It's Jesus is going to reign. He's going to run all the governments of the earth. The church will reign with him. It, if, if Isaiah 65 is referring to that period of time, which I think it is, life expectancy will go up, wars will go down, violence will go down, peace will go up because Jesus will be running the earth. But nonetheless, it is not the final full culmination. There's still more to come after the final battle at the end of the millennium. Does this make sense? I, I know this is like a lot and like it doesn't get talked about much, but I want you guys to understand like where this idea of this thousand years come for, comes from. Revelation 19 talks about it. Isaiah 65 talks about it. There's a couple other places that talk about this period of time where it seems better than life on earth has ever been, yet it's still not heaven. Many people believe, myself included, that's the millennium. Now, this millennium takes place in Revelation 19 and 20 talks about it. And then after the millennium is Revelation 21 and 22. This is the new heaven and the new earth. This is even better than the millennium. This is like the final culmination, the wedding, the birth of the child, the paying off of the debt. This is when everything explodes. And this is in Revelation 21 and 22. So if you want to go there. So I don't know if you know this. Revelation 21 and 22 is two whole chapters. And I, we're not going to be able to read every verse in Revelation in 21 and 22 today for the sake of time. But what Revelation 21 and 22 dis, uh, describe is the new heaven and the new earth, or what we would just call heaven, and what we mean when we think of like the perfect end uh, culmination of life with Jesus, where we all just float on clouds and play harps with baby angels, Right? Okay, well, if that's your view of heaven, it's probably informed more by like Sunday comics than the Bible. But Revelation 21 and 22, when they describe heaven, they, define, they describe it as a city, like a, like a wonderful, glorious, perfect city. If I can help you connect the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, Adam and Eve started in a garden, they were told to cultivate and expand the garden. They were also told to be fruitful and multiply, create more people. If that had gone perfectly, what might they end up with? A glorious city. Does that make sense? I mean, that, that's kind of how it works. You start with a small group of people in a kind of a under, you know, un, uncultivated place, you cultivate it, you populate it, and now all of a sudden you have a city. Now, humanity has, we've done that imperfectly for thousands of years. We've t taken an uncultivated place, we've cultivated it, we've populated it, but we've never ended up with glorious cities. We always end up with cities that can't pick up trash on time. <laughs> Revelation 21 and 22 is the glorious city. This is like God's, this is what God's been working at the whole time. And Jesus is the, the, the path, the, the tracks that this story runs on. So I want to read Revelation 21, just verses 2 through 4. 
There are eight ways or eight aspects of the culture or climate of this city of God that I want to look at. So because there's eight, I got to go fast, okay? So Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4, this is John writing. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where have we heard that before? Isaiah 65, right? There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Now, as I mentioned, in Revelation 21 and 22, there are eight descriptions of the culture or climate of the city of God, or it's heaven, guys, but I'm going to call it the city of God because that's the imagery that's used in Revelation. Uh, We're going to look at these eight things really quick. We'll probably only spend about two minutes on each one. But the first aspect of the culture of the city of God in, in Revelation 21 and 22 is moral purity. In verse two, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you guys remember just last week we talked about the bride getting out every spot and wrinkle, right? This is Revelation 19.7. It says, uh, let us rejoice and be glad, give glory to him, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church. But this passage also says the bride is the city. Now that's not in conflict with, the, with itself. It's just to say that the whole city will be populated by believers. The city of God that Revelation, the end of Revelation talks about is 100% populated by believers. It's got members of every nation and ethnicity that existed on earth, yet they are all followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so the bride is both the church and the city because the city is the church and the church is the city. The entire city is populated by church people and they all go to uh, Old Country Buffet after church, but that's every day. But this city has moral purity. There's no, there's no moral blemishes. There's no spots. There's no wrinkles in the, in the moral life of this city. There's no corruption There's no compromise with sin. There's no celebration of sin. God's view of good and bad, God's view of right and wrong is the same view that the citizens hold. Does that make sense? Because I got to stop saying that makes sense. After 13 years, come on, Jim. Does that track? Because God has a definitive view. It's not his opinion, it's reality of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is up and what is down, society for all of human history has said, we will come up with our own view of right and wrong, good and bad, up and down. In this city of God, the people will just agree with God. Oh, what you said, that's also what we think. That's also what we feel. We agree with you. Your morals, your moral standard is the same as our moral standard. It's not in conflict with each other. So there'll be moral purity. There will also, this is the second thing, there will also be no sin. Verse uh, 8 says this, 
But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then later, if you go down to verse 27 of chapter 21, it says, nothing unclean and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So let's do this in reverse. Who will be the citizens? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who are followers of Jesus. Every, the church are the citizens. Who will not be there? Murderers, the immoral, the sexually immoral, the cowardly. I think that's interesting. The cowardly will not. Everyone in this new city will be brave. There won't be any fear. There won't be any unbelief. Murderers. So if there's no sin in this new city, that means there can't be people committing sin. If there's no death, we, we rather, well, we will get to this later. If there's no death, then there needs to be no murderers. Right? Does that make sense? If there's no theft, there needs to be no thieves. Like that's how you make sure that you maintain that type of climate and culture. Where will they be? It says that their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is a reference to hell. Uh, Jesus references hell dozens of times. I mean, you would, you would think that maybe Jesus wouldn't talk about hell because he's so loving, but he actually talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus, Jesus references hell more than Paul, more than Moses, more than Isaiah, because Jesus understood the weightiness and the heaviness of this. He did not talk about it flippantly. He talked about it somberly. Let me, uh, I saw the best example of this that I've ever seen in my life last month. Our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is just like updating our doctrinal statement. And we do, one of our 11 statements of faith just addresses the reality and the existence of hell. And we just, you know, updated it a little bit to use more like modern language. But we had to read through all 11 of those statements in a public-like meeting of a couple thousand people. I wasn't there, but I was watching it online. And they, they brought this guy up and it's like, all right, you have to read it before we vote on it. So everyone understands what we're reading. He read through it. You know, it's, you know, created in God's image, Jesus is the only way to heaven, the Bible is a word of God, like, you know, the, the church should do communion and baptism, like, boom, 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 all the key stuff. When he got to hell, he just stopped and cried in front of everyone. I just get so frustrated at Christians who can talk about hell without choking up. It's real. I don't understand why we don't break down every time we consider it, though. When I saw that, him break down in front of a couple thousand people just reading the reality of how not, obviously not denying it, he was affirming it, but he was in tears over it. Because it is real. I almost feel like people that talk about it flippantly don't really think it's real. You know, like, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't totally understand our approach to the fate of those who reject Jesus. It should be so heavy 
on us and so weighty. It shouldn't be a baseball bat that we hit people with, nor should it be something that we dismiss. It should be something we grieve over. Because there are going to be people that are going to spend eternity there. And, and there, there's no hiding it. It's so clear from the New Testament. But there's, no, there's going to be no sin in heaven. Heavy, heaven is a city that you are either in or out of. When you're out of it, that represents separation from God for all of eternity. So the culture and the climate of the kingdom uh, of heaven not only have moral purity and they are free of sin, they also have unending intimacy with God. Revelation 21.3 says this, the tabernacle of God, tabernacle just means dwelling place. The dwelling place of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among him. In heaven, God's going to live with people and there'll be no interruptions, no distractions. This is actually the trajectory of the whole Bible. How does the Bible start? God living with Adam and Eve, right? But then what do Adam and Eve do? Genesis 3, they sin and God says, God doesn't say, I'm leaving. He says, you have to leave. But then after he leaves them, what does he do? He sends Moses, then the prophets, then ultimately his son to go get them back. Does that make You understand? <laughs> you follow? So <laughs> this is the trajectory of the whole Bible. It starts with God dwelling with humanity. Then what does God do? He says, Build a tabernacle, build a tent, Moses. Build a tent. I want to live in that tent. You guys are all living in tents. I'll live in a tent. And then after that, we get to David. And David says, I don't want to build you a tent. I want you to have a temple. Not a building that moves around made of flaps and skin and poles, but an actual temple. We all live in houses. I want you to have a house, God. And then it goes from tabernacle to temple to then in skin is Jesus, God dwelling not just in our neighborhood, but as our neighbor. Not the house down the street, but the guy down the street. It's God in the flesh. And then at Pentecost, it's not just God in the flesh, it's God in your flesh. Now the Holy Spirit is in here. I mean, this is, this is the trajectory of the whole Bible, is God saying, I want to be with you. And, and part of it is us saying, we don't want to be with you which is Adam and Eve's problem. That's why they got their wish. He removed them from the garden, but then he also has taken these grand overtures to bring us back into fellowship with him. The only means for that is through Jesus. But this is the, this is the trajectory of the entire Bible. In the city of God, we experience not just the absence of sin, but also the presence of God. Imagine how easy it would be to have a relationship with God when there's no sin and he's everywhere and there's no distraction. He's dwelling with you. I mean, it's going to be incredible. Now, it also says about this city, there'll be no more death. Verse 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. This is different from Isaiah 65, remember? Isaiah 65 said you'll live longer this says you'll live forever. This is why I think Isaiah 65 is like the leading up time, the millennial reign. 
There'll no longer be any death, and with that, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no death in heaven. When God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die, right? That was the introduction of death into creation. That all gets canceled. It says that God is getting, he is doing away with the first things. We now have a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, so death is removed. Let me continue. I'll go really quickly on this one. The architecture will be glorious. Those of you that like architecture, you're going to get to take a tour around town and see some pretty incredible stuff. I'm not going to read it because it's 12 verses, but the architecture described in chapter 21, verses 10 through 21, and it's like precious jewels and I will highlight a few things about this. First of all, the new heaven, uh, New Jerusalem, the heaven, it's huge. Now, I don't know if this is a, 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 like a metaphor or the literal measurements of heaven, but it says it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Do you know how far 1,500 miles is? Philly to Denver is 1,500 miles. Canada to Mexico. Imagine a city that was a city that was that big. A city that's as big as Alaska. And not only that, this is the crazy thing, goes up, it's cubed. It's not just square footage, it's cubed. So I, I don't know where this, I don't know who made this, I didn't make it, it's, I found it like a dozen different places online, but if you can throw that picture up for me, Andrew, this is like, that's the dimensions sitting over the United States. I feel like satellites are going to run into us because it goes out into space. Once you hit 1,000 miles up, I, well, actually, I don't know that. Once you get pretty far up, you're in space. I know that much. <laughs> if you keep going to the top of the building, you'll get to space. So this is basically, this is an illustration of the dimensions of the city that's described here. Huge, right? Really big, glorious. It has gates on all four sides, if you read through Revelation 21. It has gates on the north, gates on the south, gates in the east, gates in the west. Now that makes, that doesn't matter to us, but here's why it would matter to them. They lived in cities that had gates and walls, and in the cities that they lived in, you didn't put a gate, you did not put a gate on the side of the city if you didn't like the people over there. So if you had a Jewish city, you wouldn't put a gate facing the Samaritans because you didn't like them Samaritans. You would have a gate on this side and a gate on that side, but you would only put gates facing the nations you liked. You would not put gates facing the nations you didn't like. This city has gates in every direction, which, which means that people from every nation are welcome. From every, there are no people that we don't like. It's constructed of precious stones and costly materials. There's no cutting corners. Now, not only is the architecture glorious, the light is glorious. It'll have divine light. Verses 23 and 25 describe the light. It says, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed. They will bring into the glory and on. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And then also, 
uh, verse 22, 5 says, There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So the light will be divine light, and there will never be nighttime. Verse 22, uh, chapter 22, 2 says, It will be a place of healing. So remember in the Garden of Eden, there, was this, there were trees, two trees in particular, right? And there were these rivers and trees in the Garden of Eden. Well, this new, new Jerusalem has its own garden uh, with rivers and trees. It says, in the middle of a street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Now, remember, the, there were two trees in the garden that Adam and Eve had to look at. One of them was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were kicked out before they could eat from the tree of life. God said, well, if we let them eat from that, they'll live forever, and then they'll also be in rebellion. This is the tree they never got to. It yields fruit every month. There's no tree I know of that would yield fruit every month. There are trees that kind of go, have long periods of time, but a new crop every month. It says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, I want to view healing holistically here. If we're going to live forever, and it's called the tree of life, it's very possible that these leaves have, I don't know, this is, this is how we maintain health. This is how we're healed. It's the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. They keep us healthy. They prevent us from dying. But I, it's also very, in fact, one guy I talked to this week said, absolutely the primary meaning is this. It actually in Greek says healing of the ethnicities. The leaves of the tree are for the healings, healing of the ethnos, the ethnicities. The nations means not geopolitical nations, but different ethnic groups. This very well might be a tree that part of the healing ministry of this tree is also to bring racial reconciliation because this will be the most diverse city in the history of creation, right? More diverse than New York City, more diverse than Philly, L.A., Chicago. This will be the most, it will have residents from every single nation, and the leaves of this tree are for the healings of the nations. So it's a place of healing. Last thing, this is the eighth part. There will no longer be any curse. Verse uh, 22.3 says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve there. The curse is referring to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion. Remember, after they ate the fruit, God said <laughs> that the husband and wife would have enmity with one another. Basically, you're going to argue with each other. The most accurate biblical prophecy of all time. Husbands and wives will argue. But he's saying there's, the curse will be removed. There will be no more conflict between men and women. There will be no more pain in childbearing. No more toiling the ground for sustenance. There's no longer going to be any curse. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 talk about heaven, this, this city of God, and I just described to you what the culture's like, and I, I like that. I mean, sign me up to live there. That all sounds good to me. A city where there's no violence, no deceit, everyone gets along, we're worshiping Jesus together, God lives there, it's always sunny, 
it's already always sunny in Philadelphia, but it will be always sunny in the New Jerusalem. One of the questions that we have to wrestle with as Christians is how much of this can we is, is how much of this can we experience now, and how much of it is for later? We you know we haven't experienced there is no more death yet, but every time that a person gets healed, we get a little taste of that. Is that right? We have not experienced the healing of the nations and the, the elimination of racial conflict, right? We have not experienced that. But every time there is racial reconciliation, we get a little taste of it. The church should be aiming for every one of these eight things. They may not exist in the world, but they ought to exist in the church. And when they exist in the church, maybe the world will say, can you teach us? But until they exist in the church, the world will say, we'll figure this out on our own. How much of this can we experience? I think one of the biggest problems is we th- when we think of heaven, we almost push stuff off to heaven. I'll be healed in heaven. We'll work out our conflicts in heaven. This will all be in heaven. And I, Jesus, didn't Jesus say, pray on earth as it is in heaven? I don't think he wants us pushing stuff off to some future time. I think he wants us not pushing, but pulling. Pulling heaven into our current reality. And we did a little bit of that during worship with binding and loosing. But don't push heaven off. Pull it down. Now there, you cannot do this without putting your faith in Jesus. This is not, well, repeat this binding and loosing prayer or think happy thoughts. Everyone that's a resident here says their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? Um, No one's going to sneak through the gate, dig under the wall, jump over the wall. The only way to get in here, into the city, is to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So I just want to, I guess, provide a, a clear opportunity for people to respond. To experience this, you have to put your faith in Jesus. That is how you're made right with God. And it's, it's just, it's put your faith in Jesus. Everything after that is, is the result of putting your faith in Jesus. But it's not put your faith in Jesus and read this book, sign this document, join this church, blah, blah, blah. It's put your faith in Jesus. I preached on this a couple weeks ago from Romans 3. What makes us right in God is putting our faith in Jesus. What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus? Is Jesus your hope for salvation or do you have some other hope like, well, I think I can, I think I can make this by being a good person. Good person is so subjective. It's one of those things that like everyone thinks they are, but if you ask their spouse or their kids or their coworkers, maybe you get a different answer. Maybe you audit their taxes, check their web browser search history, Oh, <laughs> all of a sudden, you guys show that to Jesus? I'm a good person. I would much rather just be like, you know, I put my faith in Jesus. I am trusting Jesus for my faith, I mean, uh, for my salvation. I, my faith is in him. When I need healing, my faith is in Jesus. When I need uh, help, my faith is in Jesus. When it comes to my salvation, my faith is in Jesus. He is the hope. He is the one. And I'm going to devote my entire life to him because my faith is in him. 
Okay, here's how I want us to respond. And if you haven't done that, and I, please come talk to me because I would love, that was the absolute most critical life-changing decision or response moment I ever experienced when I was 13 years old, 1995. I didn't understand it super well. Most people don't when they start. I understood it about as much as a 13-year-old could. And you'll only understand it as much as you're able to now, but you will understand it more once you commit yourself to it. But if that's something you want to talk about, I would love to talk to you about that. Now, I want to ask us, I want to pray in response. Scott's going to come up and just give us a little uh, piano music. I want to pray in response. Revelation 22 ends with, I don't know what to call this. Other, it's, a, it's an invitation it's a prophecy. But Revelation twenty two seventeen. this is not on the screen. It says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to taste, take the water of life without cost. So it says the spirit and the bride, the spirit, who is the spirit? The Holy Spirit. Who's the bride? The church. They will say, come. It's the only place in the Bible that I know of where the Holy Spirit and the church are praying the same thing. I mean, I hope that we can do that more frequently, but this is the only time in the Bible I can find definitively that the Holy Spirit and the church are praying the same thing. They're saying, come. Come what? Come, Jesus. Come return, Jesus. So the church and the Holy Spirit are both saying, come. Then it says, let the one who hears say come. If you hear, if you even hear this, say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. This is what I want to respond with. You might be any of those three groups. If you are a follower of Jesus who prays in the spirit, here's how we want to respond. We're just going to say come. If you're not even a follower of Jesus, but you hear you, you're like, I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm still figuring this out, but I'm res- I, I hear what you're saying. I'm considering it. Then you can say, come. And if you're spiritually thirsty, you don't say come, you come. You're the one, that, it's almost like you say, I'm coming. So I want to lead us in a response. Would you mind standing uh, with me? Because we are wrapping up. If you are a follower of Jesus and you know that and you want to pray in agreement with the Holy Spirit would you out loud just say come Jesus we say that because the Spirit and the Bride both say come we want you to return We get strength from the promise of your return. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, or if you are not a follower of Jesus, but you hear what this passage says, and it pokes you, it provokes you, it stirs you up, if you just hear it, would you say, come? Lord, you give eyes to see and ears to hear and understand. 
Would you give that to us? Lord, we, we see what your kingdom is like and we say, come, bring your kingdom, God. Now, the third group was, let those who are thirsty come. Now, they're not saying, hey, Jesus, you come. They are saying, I will come to you. Does that make sense? So, I want to just give you an opportunity to respond to that however you want to respond to that. We've been doing this the last few weeks. If you'd like to come up front and pray, you can kneel here. The front row is mostly open. You can kneel there. Or you can do this in your seat. However you would like to respond is fine. A lot of options available to you. But if you're thirsty, this goes for... If you're already a follower of Jesus or you are like thinking about maybe you might be ready to become a follower of Jesus, you need to come to him. Do this in prayer. If you need to take a physical step to just kind of like seal this this commitment, you can do that. But I want to ask you to find a way to respond to God. So Lord, we've asked you to come. Now those of us that are thirsty, whether we are walking with you already but thirsty for more or have not been walking with you and thirsty to start, would you give, lead us in coming to you? Lead us in responding to you. Lord, as we, as we put a pin in this 40 weeks of looking at where you are in scripture and from Genesis to Revelation. We don't want to lose these lessons, Lord. You said that you will recall to our mind your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just uh, saturate in your word, that we would understand the overarching themes and narratives of your word that we would that this would be useful in forming a biblical worldview and now lord fill us with your spirit to live and to minister like jesus i pray that in your name amen thank you for listening to true vine sermon of the week this podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.